Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. So this week I want to highlight one of our sponsors, Pendo, who has an upcoming conference, Pendemonium. So Pendemonium is a two-day conference for innovators, collaborators, and anyone product-obsessed. You'll have an opportunity there to engage with remarkable product leaders and dig into topics around product-led growth, design, and success. It's coming up soon, September 10th and 11th in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be there. You should be too. To learn more, Google Pendemonium 2019 or visit Pendo at www.pendo.io. This week on Product Love, I sat down with Manish Patel, the CPO of Tier 1 Financial Solutions. So Tier 1 is a global relationship management software company. They sell to capital markets, investment banking, and investment management. So with Manish, we talked about important traits in product teams. The number one trait that Manish looked for in product teams is communication. Being a great communicator is a key part of any product role, I think. It's a base skill that people must have. And sure, domain space is important, but Manish believes that those skills can be learned. You can onboard someone, you can teach them Agile and the frameworks, but if they can't communicate well, then who can they convince to believe in your product? Product managers have to be good at building relationships. It's at the core of their job. So this discussion got me to thinking about how nowadays we tend to emphasize soft skills much more than we did in the past. I think previously, as product leaders, we sought out product managers who were ex-coders or domain experts, but I think domain knowledge is often easier to learn than the soft skills. It doesn't matter if you can code as well as an average engineer or not, but can you advocate for your team? Can you build the relationship with engineering, with CS, with sales, with design, with all the other departments? Can you get them really to trust you in your strategy for the product? Well, let me know what you think. Am I overvaluing communication? And how do you build communication? Tell me at eBodic on Twitter or email me at eBodic at pendo.io. Well, welcome over as a product. Today I have with me Manish Patel. Manish, do you want to kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Yeah, sure. So as Eric said, Manish Patel, I'm currently the chief product officer at Tier 1 Financial Solutions, which is a financial services CRM software company, basically servicing most of the major investment banking institutions within the capital markets world. So as a bit of brief background, kind of I've had an interesting journey to get to the world of product management really started many, many years back when I stumbled into IT because I couldn't get a job in marketing. Worked on a help desk for many, many years, kind of just servicing customers, and then kind of fell into a project management role at an investment bank. So kind of just managing individual point solutions, mainly internally built, and really kind of just driving forward what users wanted and translating that back to an internal development team. So kind of that was my first foray into like owning a product but really more from a project management. I didn't own the developers. I didn't own the strategy for the product. It was just, hey, we want this checkbox here. Let's go and get it done. I transitioned then into a um, product role at a software company that we were actually using their software at the bank. 
and they came and asked me to come over to New York and run their CRM platform from them from a product perspective. So that was my first kind of view into, wow, this is not just me having one single owner or boss or leader. This was, hey, I have 50 clients and now I have to keep all of them happy. So really kind of that was where the transition happened between like project management where you're singly focused and product management where you're having a look just across a more larger array of customers and larger array of management stakeholders, right? Because everyone wants a piece of it. And then kind of I've really just learned product naturally through that process, right? So kind of self-learned through running an individual product that was probably around that time about 20 million in revenue with about 50 odd clients. So kind of really just in the deep end, trying to understand how do you manage all of this different noise, competitive noise, client noise, internal needs, and then technology needs, right? Because nothing's ever staying stable. Nothing's ever staying the same. So you've got to keep up with that route as well. So really kind of just transitioned into that product role. And over those like kind of last five to eight years, kind of really adopted the agile mindset, right? So kind of like 10 years ago, wasn't really a thing. People were kind of dabbling in it. Yeah, yeah. And then went through really um, two large agile transformations at the two previous firms that I was at, kind of just taking them from the, hey, monolithic waterfall into a more agile mindset. And again, just learn a lot during that process. And that takes me to where I am now, which is the chief product officer role, which is again, just a different stage where you're not really looking at individual products and the strategy, you're looking at the strategic vision of the organization. Yeah, so from project manager to product manager, it's interesting. I mean, I, unfortunately, I think some executives still confuse those roles, <laughs> uh, which is sad in today's day and age. It used to happen a lot. But uh, what, what challenges did you have making that transition from project management to product management? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there's still a lot of confusion around that. Right. Because I think what you really find as the biggest hurdle is that, and I think I referred to this a little bit earlier, which is how do you go from just saying, okay, somebody wants something and I have to manage the delivery of that within the software that I've got or the product or the platform to, hey, I have a lot of asks. Now, how do I synthesize them? How do I make them? Okay. Are they commercial? Are they custom? do these things overlap? So if we go the extra mile, we can actually knock off seven or eight of these requests. And that's really the big, I think, difference between a project manager and a product manager, right? You're kind of, you're not just singularly focused on, okay, let's execute, get it done, move on to the next thing. You're having to look at things a bit more widespread and a bit more strategically. Yeah, and you're definitely doing that today as a, a chief product officer. Talk to me about that whole journey. Uh, tell me about what you love about being a chief product officer and what you liked about your whole journey from project management all the way through to chief product officer. Yeah, it, it's definitely been a, a journey that, as I said at the beginning, I stumbled upon, right? Um, but I love every minute of it, right? So I think starting at being a project manager where you're kind of just very singly focused, scope is very small, you move into the product management world, the scope of what you're expected to do and the skill sets that you need just are a little bit wider, right? So you have to be a bit more strategic. You have to build a few more relationships as you move into the product manager role because your influences are coming from various places and then you have to also influence others that may not be under your direct project team, right? When you're a project manager, you have an X number of resources, you have a budget, 
and you have things and you can like use the old Gantt charts to map things out. People are going to allocate their time. In the world of product, people are getting pulled left, right and center. You have engineering staff who get pulled away. You get UX folks that get pulled away into other tasks, whether it's production support. They're not singly focused on what you want to achieve. Then you kind of move into the role that I'm in today, which is the chief product officer role. And it's a different level of thought process, right? So not just am I looking at, hey, here's my roadmap, here's my backlog for my specific quarterly increment, and then here's my backlog for the sprint I have to execute on. You have to start looking at things strategically across the board, right? So not just the effect on the software, your product development team, but the commercial nature of it. How are we tracking against revenue, right? What is our customer satisfaction look like? What do our board members think of what we're doing and how we're progressing? And then obviously managing expectations across the board. So a lot of what I do every day is managing expectations. Interesting. Now, as part of that too, I mean, obviously very interesting transition journey to you for you in, in the career you have today, but you've, you've also done things both in the United States and in Europe. Yeah. And I imagine there's some interesting differences there in, in building product. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the biggest, I think one of the biggest ones is cultural, right? So, and I noticed this when I first emigrated to the US was that in Europe, there's a lot of politeness and a lot of civility. What I noticed the first thing in the US, as soon as I started going into customer meetings, internal meetings is there's a very much more direct way of saying things, right? So that was the first difference, right? The cultural difference between like, okay, you would find a way to say it politely in the UK, you come to the US, you just say it as it is. And that does translate into how and what you build in your product, right? Because I think the demanding nature of the US customer base is actually different to the UK or the European customer base. And you have to, you have to really define how you're going to build product for those markets and what you need to do and how quickly you need to do it. And that was the biggest revelation to me. I think there was definitely a much more time pressure building out products within the US that had a big US customer base as opposed to in Europe, right? But from a, just a framework perspective, how you do it, there's really no difference, right? Every, the processes are the same. The mentality is the same in terms of how you fund it, why are you doing it? I think it's just the speed at which you deliver it. The expectations are different. Interesting. And now you've been through you know, rapid scale and you've had a lot of experience in that process. So talk to me about how things change when you're scaling your products to an enterprise level or to yeah. international or to just a, a higher degree of growth. Yeah, I think it's great being a smaller company, right? Because you can really wow your customers. You can make them happy, right? Because you're basically going to be doing a lot of the things that they're asking for with a very small customer base, right? You're going to have some level of resource constraints, but most of the time you're really able to keep your customers at the front of everything that you do and really kind of like meet their demands to a certain extent. I think what happens is when you start scaling your organization out, you don't lose sight of the customer, but the customer is only one input into what you need to do as a product or an engineering organization, right? You then have internal stakeholders, you have a larger sales team who are demanding much more, and then you also have a larger customer base who may not align around the things that you they want to get done, let alone what you want to get done. So really kind of that's the difference in kind of going through that scale. How do you do it? I think the thing that I've learned is if you don't clearly communicate 
then that's where you're really going to fail, right? Because you're going to have customer demands, you're going to have internal demands, and really setting those expectations around what you're doing and showing the vision for your product or your product suites is important. Because if you can get your stakeholders to buy into your vision, they're going to forget about the incremental smaller things that they're asking for that are important to them. But they can see that, hey, if these guys actually meet this vision or execute on this vision, then what I'm getting is a better platform or a better solution. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit about how you recommend teams create that product vision, who's driving the roadmap, how you deal with multiple sources of feedback from competitors to customers to right. product team to, to the company as a whole. Yeah. So I think the first part of any product roadmap has to be the strategic vision of the organization, right? I have been a big proponent that you can ask product managers to build a roadmap and they'll go and build stuff. They'll take input from sales, they'll take input from customers, they'll talk to people internally and they'll put together a roadmap. But there has to be an umbrella under which that's being done, right? So the leaders of the organization really need to clearly define, hey, this is our strategic vision for the next three to five years. This is what we wanna be as an organization. This is where we wanna go. I think that helps frame a lot of the discussion that product managers will have when they're gathering information around building a roadmap. Who owns it is an interesting question, right? Because I think you have customers, you have executives, you have product, you have engineering, you have other internal stakeholders. I think they all have a input into it, but I truly believe the product manager owns it, right? To me, they're the ones that are responsible for gathering the input, synthesizing it, understanding how that fits with the company vision, company strategy, and then building out a roadmap that nicely fits under that umbrella for most part, but also is taking into account all of the inputs from the various constituents that they're talking about. Yeah, at the same time, there's there's friction, right? Between you know your product teams and CS, sales, marketing, uh, who all have kind of their, their own needs, their own desires, right? How do you overcome that friction and drive the product experience across those departments? I love that question. Do you know why? Because there's always a fire, right? Absolutely. And there's the, usually multiples. Yeah, and the CS guy will go, my fire is bigger than the other guys. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the sales so, fire is bigger than the marketing fire, but the exactly. you know, CS fire is even bigger. And I love it because it's like, hey, I've... And this is, I love a salesperson who comes to me and says, if I had that one feature, we could sell $6 million worth of product, right? And it's great that they think that way, right? That they're actually understanding that, hey, it proves to me they understand what the product does and what the marketability of that product is, right? And they know how to sell it. Now, would we always do that? No. And that's the friction that you talk about, right? It's like, how do you prioritize those things, right? How big is that fire? How do you deal with it? And I asked my teams to basically put it through some level of rubric, right? Which is, let's understand, first of all, what the underlying issue is, if it's a CS issue, right? How impactful is it? Where is that customer in their journey with us? Are they a new client? Are they an existing client that been with us for a while? My sales guys will hate me for saying this, but when's their renewal date, right? All of those things have to factor into how you deal with this friction, right? Because I think as product people, as product managers and engineering leads, everything that comes in can't be dealt with immediately. So you have to put it through some level of rubric or some level of process that defines, 
okay, this is the priority we're gonna give these types of issues. I think for customer success issues, that's normally easily done. I think the challenge is when you get these other issues that come in where the friction is more between your product organization and your sales organization around what they can sell and what the opportunities are, right? So another type of scenario that we're really, I really live behind is how do we define what the pipeline or what the opportunity is? So if we did go and build this shiny new thing, is there a pipeline that supports that, right? How big is the addressable market, right? How can you actually quantify that this would be something that would bring us revenue or bring us continued success in the market? Yeah, so talk to me a little bit more about, I guess, product decision framework your team uses, the rubric you right. use. A lot of it is, I think kind of, we've tried some of the standard ones and we really kind of just tweak a lot of those things. And I've done this throughout the organizations that I've kind of run product and led product in. And I think it's more around market opportunity than it is anything else, right? So every decision we make should be based on if we're adding features or adding capabilities into the product, right? Should be based on what is the addressable market, right? How do we see this defining the way we're executing our strategy? So you look at the addressable market. If it's Greenfield, a new opportunity, sometimes that can be really hard to do. So you have to at least try to go through that process. I challenge all of the sales leaders that I've worked with around addressable market, pipeline and show me the activity that proves out why we need to build these things because again eric you know this as well as i do right there are just so many things to do right? absolutely how do you narrow that down to the things that can be most effective i think another good way of looking at it is outside of the revenue way what does it do to help you mature your product or mature applications because i think the holy grail for all of us in the product world is that you want to start growing, scaling, and maturing your applications, right? So that you can be innovative, you can experiment, you can start moving it into different areas of the business or different areas of the market that you may not have previously done. You can't do that without a stable base or stable foundation of a product. So I think kind of really the decision frameworks are based on revenue, product maturity, and then I think there's a technology portion to this as well that, hey, the technology landscape is changing every day, right? There's always something new, something different that comes out that you can use, you may not be able to use, or you should be using. So I think you've just got to take in those three factors and then like really look at things through that kind of matrix. Got it, got it. So one of the big important things in making this all work is product teams, like building them, hiring them. Talk to me about your thought process around building teams and hiring. So I have a very clear view, in my head at least, around what makes a successful product team. My number one trait for a good product manager is that they have to be a phenomenal communicator. If they cannot communicate, and that's the key part of any product role, that is the base skill they must have. Do I look at product experience, being a product owner or being a product manager or having worked in a product organization? Yeah, that gets in points. But... I think those things are easier to teach, right? You can bring someone on board, you can ramp them up pretty quickly around agile methodologies, frameworks, but I think the core communication part and relationship building is something that any product person needs to have at the core of their being. They need to be able to do that. One of the areas that we've 
always struggled with and I spent the majority of my career in financial services. So it's a very unique industry and there's a lot of nuances in that industry is domain expertise. A lot of people fall over when hiring and saying they must know the industry. They must know the market. And what you get in that scenario is you're looking for a unicorn, right? Because you're looking for someone who looks like a product person, but also understands the domain deeply, right? And you can really find, you, you, I found it hard historically to try and find people with that ilk and that trait. Oh, yeah. But I, I mean, I've definitely seen a lot of job descriptions that are like, you need to have 20 years of product management experience, 15 years of experience in this domain. You need yeah. to be a great communicator. You need to be curious, passionate, empathetic. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's a long list of, you know, I mean, it's much worse than just the product management skills right. and the unicorns. But we see that a lot of yeah. like, you know, I don't know who wrote that, but they probably never ran product before in their yeah. life. Uh, but and they look for everything. People. Oh, no, right. no. You just can't find us. And when you do, they're either going to be hugely expensive, right? And it's going to be out of your range or they're just not available, right? Because somebody else has snapped them up. Yeah. And the odds are one of those areas that they're good at, you know, they're actually pretty weak. Hmm. So, yeah. Right. So, to, yeah. So to me, it's communication, relationship building and resilience, right? Because one of the things that I've learned over my career in product and from some of the best highs I've made to the worst highs I've made, right? Resilience pays a key part because it's a role which is thankless at times because you're really seen as the enemy to some of the people within the organization because you're the one saying no right but you're seen as the hero to the engineering and the quality assurance teams because you're protecting them so it's kind of that resilient you do need that resilience that hey if you want to go in every day and everybody loves you i think that's going to be tough for a good product manager in a growing company to have every day, right? You need that resilience. Yeah, yeah. I noticed you picked a lot of soft skills. Yeah. Yeah, to me, again, I think they're just as, if not more important than some of the more traditional skills within product that you can learn. And I feel like that's been a shift. Like in a lot of my interviews, talking to especially accomplished product leaders, a lot of the soft skills come out, yeah. you know, resilience, you know, stick to itiveness, as yeah. someone I think described it, passion about the problem which I, I think kind of leads to resilience. <laughs> you know, the ability to communicate very well, right. the ability to build consensus, or as you said, relationship building. Here are a lot of those soft skills. Used to be I heard a lot of like, oh, I want a product manager who has domain expertise, or, you know, the Google product managers tend to be very, you know, ex-coders, very software-oriented. And I, I feel like maybe that didn't work too well. I'm not... Do you know, I think it's just a transition, right? I think it's a transition of the world of product. Right? Yeah. Because before, at least in my view, it was very task oriented, right? You had to know technology. You had to have a deep understanding or you're an ex-coder, right? You're an ex-programmer and you moved into a product role. Because... And some of that was you have to have respect from yeah. the engineers. So you have to have that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the transition that we're all going through with Agile, which is now kind of much more mature. But... It's not about having the respect of the engineers, right? It's about understanding what you want to do with that product and solution and being able to translate that, right? So that your engineering team, your QA folks actually understand why they're doing something, right? You're not just writing lines of code for the sake of writing lines of code. This is how it ties in with how our users have experience. 
yeah, right? yeah. Our, our executive strategy, right? Those types of things. And that's why those soft skills are much more important now, right? Because you're that conduit. You have to be able to play both sides of the fence in terms of being able to rationalize and communicate why you're doing certain things to people who are engineers who may not know the industry or the market. Yeah, no, I, I'm a complete believer that, you know, even take it back to the respect statement that I, I used to hear a lot. I believe engineers are going to respect you more if you are the expert on the problem. If you learn that problem, if you're able to communicate customer needs, the needs you're getting from sales and CS, everything you're seeing in and around that problem, and you're passionate and curious about that, I think the idea that you need to get respect because you're gonna tell them the best way to to store data or help them with some coding issue, well, frankly, they should be better than you at that area. Otherwise, maybe the roles yeah. are misaligned. You, you hit the nail on the head, right? I have always said to my product teams, you own the what and the why. The folks that are smarter than you own the how they're gonna do that, right? We don't need to be involved in solutioning. We just need to be able to define clearly and articulate clearly, this is what we need to be able to do and this is why it's important. Let the smart folks, go and deal with the how, right? How they structure the data, how they write the code. All of those things are the engineering domain, right? Data science domain. But we don't need to do that. And that's why I think you've got this transition to softer skills, right? Because that really, the product role now is really kind of a set facilitator. Understand the problem, be able to communicate it clearly and be able to sell it at times. You're part salesman. Yeah, absolutely. We do. Absolutely. Completely agree. I, I see, uh, you know, the, the definition of a product manager has is, is definitely moved away from the technically minded software guy that maybe is the CEO of the product, so to yeah. speak. Talk to me about how rapid scale affects the structure of teams. Yeah, so we've been through this a couple of times, at least in my career, right? Um, I think we all started that, hey, you have a product manager, they're able to run the product. That means working with the engineers, doing the external facing stuff. I've really prescribed to the approach that once you start scaling an organization and scaling the size of your customer base, what happens is that you have a clear definition between two product roles in my head. You have a product manager who's much more externally focused, looking at the market, looking at competitors, interfacing with sales and your stakeholders. Then you have a product owner who is much more internally focused, working with the engineering teams, executing against a quarterly plan and the sprint plans. And then really those two roles are working hand in hand, but have a decent amount of conflict and tension between them. The product owner, I'm worried about execution, right? We've got this plan, we need to execute it. Product manager is thinking, hey, this would be great. Or, hey, there's this customer success issue. What are we gonna do with it? Do I interrupt? Do I throw it in? When you have one person doing that role, that internal conflict goes on in their head. Right. Whereas if you have the separation of roles, you actually have two people that then one's protecting the plan and the sprint and the roadmap. The other one's like, OK, this is reputational and we need to fix it. So that's really kind of how I see the product organization scaling is that you have this delineation of roles within the execution path. I think also what you have is you start having to bring in more senior level product people that are overseeing multiple product lines or more uh, overseeing the program like a director of product management, right? We're seeing much more of these roles come about that weren't just product managers, they're actually overseeing a value stream, 
right? So more and more companies that I'm seeing at least are now breaking their world into not products, but a group or collection of products that they'll call a value stream or a program or whatever other terminology. And then you have people who are leading those value streams from a product perspective. So how does user experience and design fit in when you're scaling and growing teams? How do you, how do you get that cross-collaboration working properly? So it's interesting. I, and this is an area that I've struggled with in the past, right? Um, user experience, in my view, is always best served as a central function that looks across the entire suite or the entire program. It's very difficult to align workloads, especially when you're scaling. Right, because otherwise you're going to end up with either a very large user experience design team that is used sporadically when there's peaks and then have a lot of downtime, right? Or you have a very small team that's just completely overwhelmed. I've seen it in two ways. I've seen it embedded within the individual scrum teams where they're working hand in hand with the product and the development teams. And I've seen it as a separated source. I still prefer the separated source because I see the way of them learning, collaborating across the business lines as opposed to it being individually embedded within each team. But to me, that all of the user design and front end is done in advance of work being handed to engineers, right? So it's always like kind of the way I do it is they, they work two or three sprints ahead of the actual development, right? So you're having to do a dual plan and then kind of track it out that, hey, we need to start work on the designs or the user research here. And you don't have them work through any issues that come up? Or how do you have them work through issues that come up as the engineers start getting involved in building out the product? So or building they, out that stream of product, whatever it happens to be. That yeah, so the then sprint. there's got to be that continuous communication between the two, right? So it's not like, hey, here's my design, I'm done, right? Yeah, Go off yeah. do it, right? Because when the engineer gets in their hands, they're going to come up against challenges, right? There may be some things that aren't technically feasible, even though the design says do it this way, right? So there has to be that continued communication and collaboration as you go through that process, right? And there has to be the availability that the engineer doesn't feel like, hey, I just got thrown this and I just have to do it, right? And then when I'm challenged, I'm like, well, how do we find a new way to do this? Or how do we tweak it a little bit that allows us to be within the technical confines that the engineer has? Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the future. What do you see as trends coming up in product management? I see a couple. I think from a people perspective, I think product managers are going to become more and more strategic. I think they are going to be asked to think a lot more broader than the current remit. I think you have silos at some companies. Some companies are very flat. But I think Product managers are going to have to really start thinking more organizationally as opposed to, hey, here's my blinkers and here's what I'm working on and here's how it affects me. And the reason I say that, and this is particularly relevant in the financial services world, is that when technology gets disrupted, what happens is that you don't have the scenario where one company comes in, drops a monolithic application into a client that does everything. Even the biggest banks in the world now are looking at user experience much more closely. So modularity is the biggest thing. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So if I'm building a solution within, I'm a product manager, I'm within my rails building something, they're now having to think, hey, how does this plug and play with not only applications that they don't even know about that are in the market, but internally within your own product suite, 
How do those things interoperate and plug and play? So that's what I mean by much more strategic and looking outside of their lens. The other trend I see is experimentation, right? I think a lot of small startups do this well when they're growing, like don't have a lot of customers, able to experiment, able to innovate. I think larger scale organizations are starting to have to do this more, right? Are having to innovate, having to experiment and having to really just look at the assets that they have and how do they make best use of them? Whether it's a data asset, and the world of data science right now is booming, there's always a lot of talk about how do we use the data we have, right? How do we be more intelligent about mining it? How do we make predictions from it? So I think in the world of product, a lot of that is gonna start getting wrapped into the thought process around how you build a roadmap and what you do going forward. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned strategic. Like we did a study of the state of product leadership at Pendo, and what we found is still, and it was in the past in earlier studies and is still today, that organizations both a hire more tactical than strategic people, but they also value tactical people more than they do strategic people. And it's not just at the individual contributor level. It's actually all the way up at the chief yeah. product officer level, yeah. which I think is, is very interesting. Yeah. It's a mindset shift, right? Because you're right. My thought process is the reason why people hire tactical because it's safer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It gets things done. But what it does, at least in my opinion, is it gets things done in the norm that you know today. So you say, right? Hey, we need to get these things done. You bring someone in, they get through it. Yeah, you can't be a product manager if you don't ship product, yeah, right? As a exactly. baseline. Yeah, as a baseline. But then the strategic side is a gamble, right? Because what you're doing is you're saying to someone, hey, I want you to execute. But while you're executing, I want you to think about ways that you disrupt what we're doing today. Disrupt the status quo. How do we do this differently? What should we do differently? That scares some organizations. It scares some leaders because they're like, whoa, that's not what I expect. But I think it is the way the world is going. And I think it's the way software companies are going to have to evolve. That's why I think this separation in roles is important because you can get tactical from your product owner, right? Let your product manager be the greenfield thinker. Yeah. And it's interesting. The other thing you mentioned was in and around experimentation. And I definitely see a huge trend there. I mean, in the best product organizations, it's not about coming up with a hypothesis and then chipping it. It's about coming up with a hypothesis and testing it yeah. and making sure that it's right and iterating on it from there. And in order to do that, you have to have that experiment engine built yeah. inside your organization or at least the mindset for being able to conduct those. Yeah, I think the important part is the mindset because, again, it's a shift away from the norm, right? You're saying that, hey, I'm going to use valuable resources that could be used for something else to do things that may not result in revenue, may not result in customer satisfaction. But if we don't continue to do those types of things, then you become stagnant. And then you're not showing your customers innovation. This ties back to the whole roadmap conversation that we talked about earlier is that how do you show a client vision? How do you show them what the future looks like and how do you get them to buy into it? You do that by showing them experimentation, right? That you are looking at things differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been fun. Let's, let's wrap up with a couple of questions more about you know, your personal perspectives. So Manish, what's your favorite product? Do you know what? It's interesting. I've, 
I use a lot of apps, I use a lot of products, right? And this is gonna sound probably the daftest answer you'll ever get to this question. My favorite app right now is my banking app from PNC. Really? It's scary, right? Because the thing gives me everything I need at the touch of my fingertips. It's just easy, simple, it does everything I want it to do. And I'm like, I don't have to ever go to a branch. I have to ever talk to a person. I'm like, this is fantastic. Right, there are cooler apps out there, but that was the one that I've been thinking about for the last like month or so. We're doing a lot of transactions, doing a lot of online stuff, online payments, and I was like, it just works. Yeah, you know, it, it, you, you thought it was a daft answer, but it's the third time I've heard someone say a financial application cool. of some kind. <laughs> so uh, evidently managing money, <laughs> very important to people, shocker. <laughs> but yes, that's the third, at least the third time I've heard someone Talk about a financial application, a budgeting application, something like that, you know, a banking application. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting that there's, you know, even taking banking, which is an industry that's been around for a long, long time, yeah. there's still a lot of opportunity to innovate there yes. and to do something that delights your users. Yeah. Absolutely. So one final question for you today, uh, three words to describe yourself. Trustworthy, reliable, and honest. Awesome. Well, thank you, Manish. It's been a pleasure. And thanks for having me, Eric. I've really enjoyed it. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.